Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. We are this morning uh, continuing our series through the seven signs of Jesus recorded by his friend John. And as we have maintained throughout, each sign provides for us a look into the true condition of our world, but not only our world, but the condition of our hearts. The good news that shines through the work of Jesus recorded here is that he is transcendent, or that, he is, that he is above, that he is, that he is powerful that he reverses the effects of sin while providing insight into how we ought to live while shaping our expectations of what is to come. What's next? The gospel informs this for us. The words of Jesus inform this for us. And so allow me to take us back. Okay, we're in the middle of, a, or actually the last, the last portion of, we're in like the last third, home stretch of this series through these seven signs. And so I want to go back and I want to catch us up on what we've seen up until this point for just a moment. So hang with me as we do a little bit of work to set the stage here in the beginning. And John 2, Jesus makes the party better by turning water into wine. In John chapter 4, he shapes the theology of the power of the word before speaking to the sufficiency of his will in John chapter 5. We're introduced to a man whose condition is not totally known, but whose rhythm of hopelessness is clear. A a man with zero expectation of transformation, yet Jesus' instruction is bold. He says to this man, get up and walk. The Old Testament confirms God's power to bring about his purpose regardless of human hesitation. Through Jesus' healing of the invalid in chapter 5, we see this familiar pattern emerging within his ministry. And that is this, that it's not human will that determines the direction of redemptive history. Now this is really important. But instead, it is the commitment of God. Now observable through the work of this Jesus. Last week, we looked at John 6, where Jesus performs this miracle of multiplying bread and fish to feed 5,000 people. And in doing so, we see this exposing of God's heart for those who hunger before on the following day, pointing them toward bread that eternally satisfies, which is Jesus, right? The the bread come down from heaven to save sinners, nourishing the soul and satisfying our deepest longings and desires, calling us to a work in the word, seeking to to understand and uncover truth and then to feed upon it, to believe in him, 
right? To believe in Jesus as king, crowned through suffering, victorious over death and victorious over hell, all to the glory of God and for our ultimate good. This is where we've been. Now we turn our attention toward the evening that preceded Jesus's explanation of the miracle of the feeding. Now, if you remember last week, we talked a little bit about how John in this chapter mirrors to some degree a similar writing style observable by Mark in that Mark will oftentimes in his gospel say something and then he will say something else and then he'll go back to the first something to talk more about it. In John chapter six, we see, we see a similar pattern emerge. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He then walks on water. This is where we'll be this morning. And then he explains the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And so we're going back to the middle portion this week. So as you would probably imagine, there's going to be some work in connecting at the conclusion of our time, what we read this week with what we saw last week. Because those events are working in that particular, in that particular order. Let me give you a main idea that we're gonna we're gonna work towards understanding as we unpack these few verses from the middle of John chapter six. I think we'll have this on the screen for you. What a what a wonderful reality. Christ casts out fear, replacing it with amazement of our king who comes to and keeps us. Christ casts out fear, replacing it with our amazement of our king who comes to and keeps us. It's my belief that John is is driving us towards, and ultimately God is driving us towards a very specific response to what we see here in John chapter 6. So let's, let's, let's talk about that before we kind of unpack a few observations from our passage. What is John desiring? What ultimately is God desiring as John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That's what makes this word perfect and without error, incapable of being wrong. John is encouraging readers to rest in Christ. Right? To, to rest in Christ, taking peace in his presence electing to worship the one who exercises supreme authority, trusting Jesus to bring us safely into his eternal kingdom. This is where we're going. And I believe this is where John is is leading us here in chapter 6. And so let's look together at John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. Um, If you have one of the Bibles that's lying around, there's a blue one and there's a white one. In the blue Bibles, that's page 520. In the white Bibles, that's page 580, um, for those that that might be helpful to. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 and reading through verse 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. 
When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Other gospel writers provide some insight into the events leading up to Jesus' work here that John doesn't. Following his feeding, the 5,000, Jesus instructs his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. Only, as we look to insight provided by these other gospel writers, we find that Jesus is not going with them, at least not immediately. Instead, he instructs his friends to load themselves into a boat. A boat that's roughly 26 and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide to begin a five to six mile crossing while he spends time with the Father in prayer. Night settles in. The wind begins to blow, verse 18, and the conditions become less than ideal even for the most skilled sailor. We find as we survey the various gospel accounts that their progress is really slow. Roughly six to eight hours into their crossing, they are likely only one half to two thirds of the way to their destination. The scene is really scary. And one can imagine that at this point, everyone is looking around at one another, concerned as to whether or not things are going to be okay. And most interested, I would imagine, in the whereabouts of Jesus. It's at this point, as things are are getting really crazy on the Sea of Galilee, that they observed Jesus walking on the sea, verse 19. Of course, this is incredible, isn't it? It's incredible to imagine. It's incredible to, to think about picturing Jesus walking on the surface of, of the water. It defies the laws of science. This is not something that that we are able to do. This is not something that man is capable of accomplishing. And if we were to stop here, there are many who would be satisfied. But as has become typical of the signs of Jesus, this is about more than an impressive work. In fact, while the feet of Jesus certainly results in a sense of astonishment. We come to find, as we continue on through the passage, considering the the ministry of Jesus as a whole, that is not simply astonishment that Jesus intends to produce. But it's what? Well, it's adoration. It's not amazement, it's not astonishment that that drives Jesus to perform the works that he does, but it is this desire 
that we would come into this position of, of adoration and worship of him. This reality leads us into our first observation from these few verses. The authority of Christ observable here in John chapter 6. A visible demonstration of the sovereignty of Jesus over the world that he created. Remember where we've been. We've been in the book of Genesis. We were in the book of Genesis for a very long time, for those of you who were here for that. And we're introduced in the beginning to this God who creates by the power of his word. Various New Testament authors assist us in coming to the conclusion that it is ultimately Jesus who is active in creation, producing all that we see around us and all that we read about there in the very beginning. Steve Lawson, a professor of preaching at the Master's Seminary, speaks about the sovereignty of God emphasized by Jesus in this passage as he writes, the following. This is language that perhaps you are to some degree unfamiliar with. We talk of God's sovereignty and you go, wow, that sounds like, like, a, like a $50 word right there, right? High points in Scrabble. But what does that mean? Right, what are we talking about when we, when we talk of the sovereignty of God? Listen to what Lawson has to say. He says, the sovereignty of God is not a secondary doctrine that is relegated to an obscure corner in the Bible. You hear that and you go, how important could that word be? Lawson says, man, it is of profound importance. Rather, this truth is the very bedrock doctrine of all scripture. This is, he writes, the Mount Everest of biblical teaching. The towering truth that transcends all theology. From its opening verse, the Bible asserts in no uncertain terms that God is and that God reigns. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that that he is God, not merely in name, but in full reality. God does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, how he pleases, and with whom he pleases. All other doctrine, Lawson writes, of the Christian faith must be brought into an alignment with this keystone truth. All doctrines of Christian faith are brought into an alignment with an understanding of the sovereignty of God, with an understanding of the authority of God. God's sovereignty, Lawson continues, is the free exercise of his supreme authority in executing and administrating his eternal purposes. God must be sovereign if he is to be truly God. A God who is not sovereign is not God at all. A God who is less than fully sovereign is not worthy of our worship, much less our witness. But the Bible proclaims for all to hear, Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. God is exactly who scripture declares he is. 
He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth whose supreme authority is over all. Wow. The authority of God. The sovereignty of God is what distinguishes God from the false, powerless gods of this world. Yes. (laughs) Worthy to remember. Just keep me on the line, Miss Anderson, if things get out of hand. Powerless gods of this world like intellectualism, nationalism, idealism, morality, economic prosperity, acceptance, affluence, aspiration and expectation of those around us. All of these, all of these gods competing for our hearts and our attention, yet totally lacking the ability to really hear us or love us or purpose us. They fail to save us. They fail in satisfying us or leading us in power as God alone can do. The disciples are struggling to understand what has just happened. Mark draws out the condition of the hearts of his friends in his gospel as he writes of their hardened hearts in response to Jesus' feeding the people. There is confusion from the disciples about Jesus and what he is doing. Confusion that Jesus addresses in the storm so that through it he might display his authority in the world he created. He is, God is sovereign over the world that he created. The author to the Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 writes the following. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word, after making purification for sins, sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He continues on in verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus is identifying himself here as divine. One who, Psalm 89, verse 9, rules the raging sea, stilling the waters as they rise. This is who Jesus is. There's a pattern that Jesus is establishing. A pattern that informs our understanding of what it means to follow after him. That Jesus is more interested in you and I knowing who he is than securing for us superficial comfort in this life. A life that is momentary. right? A life that is, that is brief. 
knowledge of his authority to secure eternal hope through his crucifixion and resurrection, the glory of God understood and celebrated is for Jesus as God paramount. This is what Jesus is interested in. This is a reality that drastically transforms the way that we see the world and understand our place in it. What is God interested in? Superficial comfort for you and I? Plush, easy existence on this side of eternity? That's not the picture that scripture paints. That's not the picture that this scene paints. (laughs) If it were, it would venture to reason that the water would be glassy smooth across the sea. Jesus is interested in us knowing some very specific things about who he is. Things that are, as we find in this passage, learned only through difficulty. Only through hardship. Jesus is bringing these truths to the surface, these paramount realities, in order that the disciples might cling to the words of Jesus in verses 22 through 71, which we saw last week. In spite of its difficulty, because of the authority of Jesus that they witness here. If you weren't here with us last week and you go, well, that's all well and good, but I'm not quite sure I know what Jesus is saying in those verses. Hang on, we're going to revisit those at the end. We transition. The authority of Christ observable in this scene to the comforting heart of Christ in John chapter 6. Jesus meets the fear of his disciples with reassurance. What does he say to them in verse 20? Look there with me. He says to them, it's I. Things around you are, are raging and the scene is super chaotic. But allow me to reassure you. It is, it is I, do not be afraid. A statement easily connected with one similar recorded by Moses in the Exodus as he is instructed by God to bring his people out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, God speaking to Moses, to which Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you to free you, to liberate you, to to bring you out of the land. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Through the it is I statement of Jesus here in John chapter 6, we are seeing him marrying himself with the I am statement of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Not only is his comforting heart on display, not only is his authority on display, but he is identifying himself indeed as divine. The presence of Jesus with his followers results in 
Verse 21, relief. The comforting heart of God, the caring heart of God creates relief within his friends. It says that the disciples are are glad to take him into the boat. I would imagine so. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The proximity of Jesus. Right, the, the proximity of Jesus, sovereign over the wind and waves, brings peace and welcomed rest. We're in need of hearing this. We're in need of this, of this reaffirmed reality in our lives, for our lives. Not only because he is now with his friends, but did you catch it? But because his friends are immediately, geographically, exactly where he intended them to be. Jesus would go on to assure his followers of their security in him. Assuredness of eternal life through his broken and resurrected body. Jesus can do this. He can say this because he stills the storm that is ultimately God's wrath directed towards our sin in his death as he brings weary travelers to their ultimate destination. There are two amazing signs observable here in John 6. Just the portion that we read this morning. First, that Jesus walks on the water. Maybe three, as I'm thinking it out loud right now. He walks on the water. He He calms the sea, and then they immediately arrive at their destination. It's like there's a time warp that happens here in John chapter 6. It's really amazing. It's, It's really beautiful, and it's really purposeful. We see here in John chapter 6 the authority of Christ. We see here in John chapter 6 the comforting heart of Christ. In addition, we see here in John chapter 6, the preeminence of Christ. As we survey this portion of John 6 in its fullness. A preeminence understood by the Apostle Paul as he writes of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created. It makes total sense that Jesus would exercise his sovereignty in the way that he does when we come alongside Paul's writing here. Like he can defy laws <laughs> that make sense to us in our world, like, like gravity, <laughs> right? Because he created it. He created it all, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And all things were created for him. He is before all things. And in in, in him, all things hold together. Jesus holds it all together. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
Right? He, is the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus walks on the water to reveal his deity to his followers and to bring it near. But he's constructing for his people this understanding of what it means for Christ to be divine. He he drives it home. He, He brings it right to the front door. What happens to a person when Jesus reveals himself in this way? Man, what a wonderful question for us to consider. As Jesus reveals his deity and brings it near to us, what happens to us? Well, the text helps us to answer the question. When Jesus and his disciples finally make it to the shore, the people that had just been fed have walked across the lake and are waiting for them, and Jesus tells them something very difficult. He says that they didn't come seeking him because of who he was, but rather they came seeking him because of what he did for them. He tells them if they really want to follow him, they have to believe and know that he is the true bread of heaven. Unless they eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, they can have no part of him. Which leads us back to John chapter 6, verses 41 through 46, which we read last week, but we're going to revisit now. And so, Turn there with me. Look right over there. If you've closed your Bibles, open those back up. Let's look at John chapter 6, beginning in 41 and working our way through verse 66. These are the truths that Jesus drives home as he explains his feeding of the 5,000 following his walking on the water. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is this emphasis on this last day in light of Christ's deity being exposed. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, that is my person, that is my body, will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen? Do you remember this from last week? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh leads into fear. The flesh leads into anxiousness. Christ dispels this by way of his presence. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who uh, did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back, no longer walking with Jesus. What do we see? Well, we see the people refusing to see Jesus for who he is. And as a result, they walk away. And Jesus let them. He let them walk away. The condition of the disciples out on the lake, not understanding the power of who Jesus was, was the same as the people who had previously walked away. Their hearts were hardened. But since they were his, he didn't let them walk away. He didn't let them walk away, but instead he pursued them. He walked on on the water, to broaden their comprehension of his deity, right? The crowds begin to disperse, and Jesus, looking at the 12, poses the question that we concluded with last week, verses 67 through 69. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus met with his disciples on that stormy lake (laughs) in such a way that caused those who once were hard of heart to be able to say, Jesus, where else are we supposed to go? It caused them who were once unbelieving to be able to believe. Here is the reality that is being just driven home here in John chapter 6. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, rest in this. He will not let you go. He won't let you go. He will come to you. Our security is not dependent upon our ability to never doubt. Our our security is not dependent upon our ability to never struggle, but in his ability to walk on water and to come to us over and over and over again. Kristen Weatherall, a writer, Bible teacher, and content manager at Unlocking the Bible, And a guest contribution to Desiring God wrote the following. The truth that when we are weak, he is strong, casts 
out the fear that will be left to our own devices and resources. It casts out this fear that we won't make it through the darkest night of the soul. But Jesus not only walked on waves, stilled the storm, delivered his disciples, but passes through the valley of the shadow of death at Calvary so that we would never walk alone. He knew the darkness of forsakenness so that we would never be forsaken. And he held the victory over sin and death so our hope for eternal life would be in him. And be not afraid. Be not afraid because God will provide everything that you need. What a reassuring hope that we stand in need of reminder of daily that God pursues us. He provides us with peace and he brings us to our destination. We said in the beginning, take heart, right? Christ casts out fear. And he replaces it with amazement of our king who comes to and keeps us. At this point, the easiest thing to do is nothing. The easiest thing to do is is nothing, to hear the word and to resist. But when the heart believes and the heart receives, and the heart repents, what we find is that our wills are energized and put into practice in order that we might indeed receive. John desires that those reading along would respond. Let's consider what we said in the beginning. I think we have this to put this up. Can we put this up? John desires that those reading along would respond by taking rest in Jesus. Taking rest in Jesus, finding peace in his presence, fleeing from fear, fear of man, fear of circumstance in this world, electing instead to worship the one who calms the sea, understanding that he is sovereign, to trust in Christ, to bring us safely into his eternal kingdom, confident that he will maintain possession of those given to him. In a word, how do we respond? We worship. We worship. Consider what we read last week. Again, we stand with Peter and we say individually and corporately, where else can we go, Jesus, but to you? You, Jesus, are are powerful. You, Jesus, give us peace. You give us peace through the blood of your cross. You provide hope for hurting people and comfort 
for those who are confused. We lean into this confession. As we respond to God's word, we come to the table, to the Lord's table, and we take of the bread and the cup and we, we remember right, the reality of Christ's work that in this most chaotic moment, he remains sovereign. He remains completely authoritative, having given himself willfully to the plan of the Father before the foundations of the world to rescue sinners to himself so that we might find comfort, not in the things of this world, not in our circumstances, but that we would find comfort in him. Who are we looking to for comfort? We come to the Lord's table and we remember these truths. We celebrate as God's people. We celebrate as God's people our adoption through the sacrifice of our King into the family of our heavenly father. We respond in this time by by giving to support gospel work under this conviction that God calls and equips us. He sends us out in peace to proclaim a message of peace through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we lift our voices and we sing as joy-filled people. Peace in Christ. This morning, we're gonna sing a new song. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to just read a portion of it um, just to prepare us as we come to the table, as we respond by, by giving, as we respond by taking of the Lord's Supper, as we respond by lifting our voices together. I wanna give us a preview of what we're going to corporately lift our voices in affirmation of in just a moment.